Well, listeners, and thank you for tuning into another episode of the Rental Housing Association of Washington's podcast, Housing Matters. Uh, thank you very much for everybody who has been listening to our previous episodes. Uh, if you missed my, our most recent episode, I spoke with Corey Brewer of Lori Gill and Associates, Windermere Property Management, and we talked about the uh, rental housing supply as well as some other state issues. Um, and we had a very, very good conversation uh, as well as the current state of the rental market and uh, evictions and resident safety. Um, For this week's episode, I sat down with Chester Baldwin, or Chet as most people call him. Uh, He's a local attorney in Olympia, and he's RHA's lobbyist down there as well. Uh, He's worked with legislators for years, uh, crafting bills and helping pass smart legislation, and lobbies for other organizations such as the Washington Business Properties Association and Manufactured Housing Communities of Washington. We talk in more detail about his history being an attorney and becoming a lobbyist, as well as his time in Boy Scouts, as we're both Eagle Scouts. Uh, So we had a nice discussion about that. Uh, We cover a brief review of some of the housing-centric bills from last year's legislative session, as well as what we can look for in this year's session with regards to any of those bills coming back up and new bills uh, coming up along the way. We also discuss how we may be able to motivate builders and investors to come into our state and help with this housing supply issue. I also talk with Chet about what he thinks about the six initiatives put forward by Let's Go Washington. And I will note when we recorded this um, interview, only four of those initiatives had been submitted to the state uh, for signature approval. But at the time of this recording, all six have now been submitted to the state. So we'll see what happens with that. I also want to address one item before we jump into the interview. At one point, I said I got uh, the Washington Business Properties Association got behind a bill to ban natural gas. Uh, effectively ban natural gas in our state. And what I meant to say was get behind the opposition to the bill. So I just wanted to clear that up before we get into the interview. Washington Business Properties Association was very much against the uh, basically all out ban on natural gas uh, in Washington state. Also, I want to mention at the time of this interview, we did not have the specifics on the rent control bill that will be coming to the House Housing Committee, uh, sponsored by Reps Alvarado and Macri. We do have some more specifics on that now. So I will cover that after our interview. Uh, in the meantime, please enjoy my interview with Chester Baldwin, RHA's chief lobbyist in Olympia. Well, Chester Baldwin, thank you very much for joining Housing Matters, the Rental Housing Association of Washington podcast. I very much appreciate your time. Uh, would you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and kind of how you got into uh, being an attorney and, and lobbying and all that? Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to get to join the podcast. Um, so my name is Chester Baldwin. I am uh, an attorney and lobbyist here in the state of Washington. Um, I actually grew up right here in Olympia. Um, I went to Tumwater High School, just a couple miles from the capital here. Um, my parents actually still live in the same house I grew up in. Wow. Um, and I, from Olympia, ended up going to school first for a year and a half at Western Washington University, then eventually transferred to the University of Washington um, and ended up graduating from there. I worked for a, a consulting firm in healthcare, actually, in Seattle for a number of years and then uh, ended up going to law school. And then um, worked down here in private practice. I was um, first a prosecutor here at Thurston County and then um, worked in private practice doing criminal defense, um, landlord tenant law, social security, L&I, contractor disputes. I've pretty much done everything except family law. Never, ever. (laughs) Uh, And that was by choice. Uh, But um, I ended up um, getting to do some lobbying work kind of offhand, uh, not because I was um, necessarily knowledgeable about the career of lobbying, but I happened to be in the same firm um, that John Woodring worked in. And Uh many of our members will remember John. He was the RHA lobbyist for 20 plus years. Uh And so um, I worked for a gentleman named Jack Hahnemann. It was John's door, Jack's door, and then my door. And so (laughs) um, one time John came down and asked if I'd like to help him with some lobbying for the manufactured housing communities. And I had no idea what that meant. And he said, well, give it a try. And so um, I got to come down to Olympia and do a little bit or, you know, come over to Olympia and do a little bit of work in that. And it just it was a really good fit. It was like my favorite parts of law practice, getting to negotiate things, getting to work things out and getting to find resolutions to those. And so um, I was pretty hooked. Um, And then uh, just by way of the story, uh, John Wogadring happened to be partners with a gentleman named Mark Jurassic for 25 years. And so um, I met Mark through John and ended up taking over Mark's lobbying practice. All right. So I, um, in 2020, we made that transition and now Mark still works with me. Um, but I just say too, he is one of the warmest people <laughs> I've ever met on the get go. I walked into a room with him the first time. He had no idea who it was. He just knew I worked for RHA and he's one of the first people to come up and 
you know, say welcome to welcome to this world, uh, Mark. Nice, very nice to meet you. Yeah, yeah, he's a really good guy. I've enjoyed working with Mark, and I've learned a ton from him. I learned a lot from John, and you know, I got the pleasure of working with Kyle Woodring, John's son, for a number of years with RHA too. So fantastic. Um, and I should probably know this off my top of my head, but how long have you been RHA's uh, lobbyist? <laughs> I've been RHA's lobbyist for what about three years now? Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, and before that we were partnered on a lot of things because yeah. I worked with some other housing providers and Kyle was RHA's lobbyist okay. and then transitioned into that. Beautiful. Um, going back to a little bit of your earlier life, you are an Eagle Scout, uh, as, as my, um, uh, I feel like that's, uh, becoming a kind of a dying thing. So every time I run into another Eagle Scout, I got to make a big, yeah, big deal. About it. <laughs> it is a dying thing. Yes. Uh, yes. Unfortunately, but it's, uh. That was some of the best memories of my of my childhood. I don't know. Uh, did, you, did you have any favorite summer camps and things like that? Or yeah, there's actually a Boy Scout camp about 15 miles from Olympia, um, yeah. out to what is that? Uh, Summit Lake. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And it's Camp Thunderbird out at oh, Th- yeah. Summit Lake. I know exactly so what you're talking about. Yeah. I uh, I swam the Thunderbird Mile. Uh, I got a lot of merit badges there <laughs> and had a lot of good times. Yeah. Um, We'd go pretty much every summer. Uh, sometimes there'd be a camp somewhere else and we'd all go there. But, sure. but yeah, I went to a lot of camps. Um, my dad was one of the scoutmasters, so I w- he was involved in a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I have um, five brothers and five brothers who are Eagle Scouts. So there are six Eagle Scouts in my family. Wow. That is... And my dad wasn't an Eagle Scout, actually. So, um, But yeah, I, I, um, I got my Eagle Scout at about 13, just before I turned 14. Um, and so I, uh, I got to do a lot of things in scouting that I think really helped me and, yeah. you know, the overcoming challenges, uh, dealing with adversity. I learned a lot of things that I still use today during that time, you know, in, in Boy Scouts. And, you know, I had a lot of good times and there's some, some lessons that were learned in that too, which are <laughs> yeah. both necessary, I think, yes. especially when you're about that age with a half developed brain as a boy, uh, <laughs> doing things so i yeah i, I distinctly remember uh yeah one summer we were at uh camp parsons just out on um hood canal yeah and, we went uh, there once did you yeah, yeah love love parsons but we uh decided to have some sort of rock fight with this troop next to us and i'll never forget one of my best friends dad's was the scout master and uh i have never been yelled at like that in my life and he we were going home the next day it was summer camp was over and he said if we weren't going home tomorrow you and my son and everybody else involved with you you guys be out of here and, uh, <laughs> I was like, okay uh, uh, yeah i learned my lesson on that one but um thunderbird's awesome when when i went there it was kind of more of a cub scout camp but we did like order of the arrow stuff there mm-hmm. and things like that too but um yeah I had some really good times at thunderbird and hohobus which hohobus uh, unfortunately is no longer a yeah. camp yeah they, they sold it off but uh my my dad who's in his early 60s um went to hohobus as a as a scout so that was <laughs> Long, long legacy there. Yeah. Um, you know, Andrew Barkas, uh, one of our favorite lawmakers yeah. here in Olympia, Representative Barkas, is also an Eagle Scout. I did not know that either. Okay. Well, so when you get a chance to talk to him, you'll yes. have to ask him we'll about his Eagle Scout stuff. That. He and I, there are a bunch of parallels. Like, there are 10 kids in my family. There are nine kids in his family. <laughs> uh, so kind of fun. No, I, I'd love to chat with him about that. As you said, it it, um, it contributed a lot to um, becoming a, a, the man I am today and and developmental skills and just good time hanging out with hanging out with the guys and, and yeah. learning life skills that I still still use today. So. Yeah, and staying out of trouble. I mean Seriously. it was a yeah. there yeah. was a lot of things I had friends that were doing and I was busy doing other things. Right. So like, hey you wanna come do this thing with me this week? No, I'm going camping and you know, yeah. they would do something and get in trouble and I was, you know, hanging out in a tent and pouring down rain <laughs> on some warehouse or oh, ground somewhere. A lot out of it. rain camping. Yeah. yeah. So much rain camping. Uh everybody would wonder, like, why are you going camping and you know, February. I don't, I don't know. We're, we go every month. Yeah, we go all the time. Yeah. You, I don't know what to say. <laughs> it, uh, snow cave camping at Rainier one year. That was that was fun too. Yeah. I, I think I was too young to understand the concept of if this collapses on us, we'll die. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think my dad slept very well that, that evening. Oh but, god. Uh, yeah. Um, I know uh, uh, you do some uh, pro bono work for. Uh, juveniles and veterans. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about giving back some of your time and 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 all that with these with these groups. Sure. So um, I've been a criminal defense attorney longer than I've been anything else. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything that I am better at than lobbying, it is criminal defense work. <laughs> and, you know, I, I worked a lot as a private attorney in Olympia doing criminal defense. Um, and 
you know, I had clients who were both juveniles and sometimes veterans. And those were two places that I saw people not getting the representation they needed, not because public defenders don't do a good job, but their caseloads are different than sure. what a private attorneys are. Sure. So eventually I just worked with the Thurston County uh, Family and Juvenile Court to have them assign me some cases, especially ones that they had issues with because there's these are conflict of interest or something else. Um, and then the city of Olympia does a lot of work with downtown Olympia and there's mm-hmm. a lot of veterans and homeless. And a lot of this, um, you know, stems from not having the resources that we need for some of these groups in order to, um, you know, have them be self-sufficient and not end up, you know, in trouble with the law. Now mm-hmm. I will say, um, you know, the last several years, um, the city of Olympia, but I'm sure every other city has been much more lenient on um, sort of the homeless issues that exist. Sure. Uh, probably especially after the Boise decision that said you couldn't put somebody in jail for vagrancy or anti-camping or any of those things unless you had enough beds on any given night to sleep all of the homeless people in your community. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think things relaxed a little after that. Olympia's had some problems with their managing the homeless communities that they have, but... Um, but I still think, you know, anybody who is caught up in the criminal justice system needs somebody to represent them. Sure. And um, as a criminal defense attorney, that's something I believe in. Excellent. Um, so we'll get to your lobbying efforts for, for RHA in a, in a second. But uh, I just want to talk about a couple of the other orgs that you that you represent. The uh, first one that you did lobbying for, the Manufactured Housing Communities of Washington, as well as the uh, Washington Business Properties Association. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about something WBPA was big on. Uh, they got a lot... Um, they got behind the uh, kind of new construction uh, requiring the no gas appliances type thing. And the state did indeed move forward with, you know, a watered down version of that, I guess. But um, kind of tying that back to housing, do you think that that's uh, really going to have an impact on, on new construction? Yeah. So that's a fantastic question. So the state's been working on trying to ban natural gas for at least the last three years. Mm-hmm. And it has been governor request legislation. So our governor wants to ban natural gas across the entire state for everyone. The problem is um, we don't actually know if we have enough electricity that if we ban natural gas, we could function. And by the way, we don't. Um, Interestingly, the legislature passed a bill two years ago unanimously to study whether or not we had enough electricity. And guess what? The governor vetoed it because he doesn't really want that answer out there because we don't. And also, if you put on top of that, just layer on that we have a mandate by 2030 to go to all electric vehicles. Where's that power going to come from? And then on top of that, the governor wants to blow up the dams to allow the salmon to swim upstream. And that's where we get our power. And Washington's very, very lucky in the sense that Washington and Tennessee have the two lowest power rates in the nation because of all the hydroelectricity that we develop. And Washington made this decision a number of years ago to determine that hydro was not a renewable energy source, which is garbage. Absolutely. Uh, That just is to funnel people into wind and solar, even though those things work so much less efficiently than hydro in this area. But, you know, overall, we've got a problem with electrical anyway, because you can't store that power. Um, And, you know, there have been places who've banned natural gas, Berkeley for one, and those locations experienced rolling blackouts at times, brownouts at times, Mm. because generally speaking, when you hit peak demand, you don't have enough electricity for that. And they would normally turn on these giant natural gas fired turbines that would produce enough electricity to meet the demand at peak sure. times. They could not turn those on anymore because they'd been banned. <laughs> so there was a decision out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals right towards the end of session last year that said that no jurisdiction may ban natural gas because there is a federal preemption on appliances. So like gas stoves, gas ovens, all those things, sure. no local jurisdiction is allowed to ban those. And so they, uh, the governor had to do something different. And he's been trying to get, the, well, first he packed the state building code council with people who would vote the way he wanted them to. And then he got the state building code council to ban natural gas and new construction. But then the, the decision out of Berkeley came and they realized they couldn't do that. So they rolled back their ban to say, you can't use any gas appliance that's less um, efficient than the electrical version. Sure. So it's still, you know, in essence, looking to ban natural gas. And that's 100% the goal. And I think one of the things most frustrating to me is that the general public has no idea this is going on. Mm-hmm. And the more of the general public that I talk to and just inform about this natural gas ban, the more of them that are angry because <laughs> it's a stupid idea. Yeah. And on top of all those things that we've already talked about, if you look at it from sort of a national security defense plan standpoint, you're giving up a resource. 
Yeah. And so you're giving your enemies, and I'm not you know, a conspiracy theorist or anything, but if you only have electric power and you don't have natural gas and somebody wants to knock out your electric power, well, you're done. Yeah. And we, so many things are affected by that that I just think it's a bad decision and one that is very short-sighted by a governor who only has one issue. And his issue is carbon and climate, and that's it. And we'll get to the carbon uh, thing in a little while. I do want to I do want to touch on that for sure because absolutely, what a uh, yeah, we'll, we'll touch on that. Um, one of the uh, one of the big bills uh, that RHA and the manufactured housing communities of Washington um, was uh, were kind of concerned about last year was the first right of refusal uh, bill for the sale of mobile home parks. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of how that went? Um, I did I did a quick little search online, and I guess there's been seven yes. successful purchases. Yep. Um, how, what are you What are you hearing on on that? So I think um, we're going to have a little bit of a trailer bill this year, mm-hmm. just to kind of clean up a couple of the things that some dates and making sure that everybody's on the same page with some things, not making substantive changes. Sure. But that was a very big bill in the manufactured housing mm-hmm. space last year. It is something that for the last six years we had defeated. Um, and then we came to a point with rent control and with other things out there that we needed to find a way to work on this. And so we actually, um, myself, um, Mike Hoover, Brad Tower, and those two did yeoman's work on this bill uh, to get us to a place where we could actually support it. Mm-hmm. And it has two things in it. It has a right of first refusal, which we'll talk about. And then it has an extension of park closure notice. And so those two things are both topics that had been big issues in Olympia. And the right of first refusal part um, requires us to work with a resident group who might want to purchase the park mm-hmm. and to give them an opportunity with some time frames and some um, specific language to allow them to put in an offer or to potentially participate in that sale. Sure. And those are things we very much support. Um, realistically, there's not a lot of resident groups that can pull together the financing, mm-hmm. even working with a group called Rock resident-owned communities to get that done. In fact, we had um, one with one of our RHA members, oh. I believe, that completely fell through um, because the funding just couldn't work the way that mm. they had hoped it would. Uh, and the, the resident groups couldn't come up with their portion of things. And the other problem with... So I, I totally support resident-owned communities. When we can find that partnership, it's wonderful. Yeah. But if we're going to do that, the state of Washington really needs to create a fund so that when infrastructure fails, whether that's a water system, mm. the septic or whatever it is, they have money that they can loan or grant to these communities because the number one thing that closes these communities is they become resident owned and then they get a $1.5 million bill because the water system failed and they don't have the resources to be able to take care of that. And then the park closes and all those people lose their housing. And you know we've done a lot of work on relocation assistance Mm -hmm. in the manufactured housing sphere because we know that some of these parks are going to close. And the ones that are closing are the ones that are right now in the path of progress. They are in transit-oriented development areas where the RTA is or whatever, and they're pulling out a park that has 54 spaces, and they're going to put in 350 spaces of housing, sure. multifamily housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll be close to a transit stop, so it'll serve people who might not have um, vehicles. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we'd love every manufactured home park to stay forever, um, but we also understand that there are different needs at times. Sure. and. One of the biggest problems we have in the state, it has always been a cycle where um, the city has kind of sprawled. They've come to where the park is. The park gets redeveloped into something else, but a new park opens or two new parks sure. open. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. But over the last 20 years, because of the Growth Management Act, those new parks can't open because the they are, you know, they are not allowed to build outside of that UGA boundary. And so that's been a huge issue for us. And it's one of the reasons why every city wants to make sure their manufactured housing community doesn't close but they also don't want a new one in their community. So, you know, those are problems that we generally face in the manufactured housing area that are a little different from even the rental housing area. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'd love to see new parks. We would love to build new parks. There's a new one going up in Squim. I think there is um, a new one or a relatively new one in Yakima, but those are the only two communities that I know of that are new Mm -hmm. over the last 20 years or so. So- okay. We're really hoping, we've got a bill this year actually on the manufactured housing area that Mm -hmm. would allow uh, these parks to go outside of the urban growth boundary where those areas are served by um, services already, water, sewer, those kinds of things. Because often there are areas that directly across the street uh, is area that we could build, but it's outside the UGA. 
And so being able to go just that little bit would allow us to provide much more affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And that's always what manufactured housing has been. It has been workforce housing and affordable housing and housing that can be obtained and you can own a home without having to, you know, fight in a market where right. the average home price is over $500,000. Yeah. Which is the, yeah, the other flip side of that coin is it's still an affordable place to live and uh, you can still own the house, you know, you, you yeah. lease your dirt underneath and, and obviously I know there's park owned homes, but still a, a, an affordable option to buy a home if you would like to. And, um, and the other thing, you know, there's all this fear of parks closing, but the reality is the vast majority mm -hmm. of parks are not closing, they're not looking to close, yeah. they're run by people who love having manufactured housing communities, no. and they do not intend to change that. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so legislative session 2023, there were, uh, I believe it was six big rent control bills uh, that you and RHA and legislators and kind of our collective coalition um, were able to stop. Those will automatically come back up because of the the biennium rules. Um, what do you kind of see, kind of see with those? I know some of most of those were, you know, CPI inflation data tied to uh, raising rent and also um, notice of timeline, new cause of action possibilities and things like that. Yeah, uh, we've never seen this kind of focus on rent control. Mm -hmm. um, we've fought rent control bills in the past, um, but we had six of them last year and all six were serious rent control bills, um, including one aimed only at manufactured housing communities, um, two that were looking to just remove the state preemption against local yeah. jurisdictions being able to enact rent control. And that would mean we could have 350 different rent control programs around the state because every city and county could have their own version. And that's not good for anyone. In fact, the biggest problem we have in housing is the non-uniformity of housing laws across the state. And the fact that we have a patchwork of laws where all these different cities are passing different things and then if you're a small housing provider, how do you ever keep up with yeah. all those different regulations? And if you want to be a good housing provider and, and follow the law and do everything right, we've made it almost impossible if you have different jurisdictions because no one can keep up with those number of things. And especially our small housing providers. We have a lot of what I like to call accidental housing providers. Yeah, yes. They're, yeah. Um, you know, people who had a, a starter home and then eventually they moved up to another home and instead of selling this house because the timing wasn't right or whatever it was, mm -hmm. they chose to become um, housing providers. And yeah. so they rented their house. And the biggest problem, not the biggest, one of the biggest problems we have is that those people are like, I'm not doing this anymore. Right. Like this is nuts. And I don't have to do this. I can sell this in a perfect market yep. where I can get top dollar for this unit. But in Seattle, when that unit sells, that has been a, a, an affordable rental for a long time, the average median home price is $869,000. I mean, you're looking at a $5,000 a month rent in order just to cover your mortgages and expenses, right. which doesn't make any sense and is not affordable. No. And the state of Washington has a huge housing crisis. They're short somewhere between 800,000 and a million housing units. Commerce says we'll be short a million housing units by 2040, and those numbers keep going up. So we're not building new housing either, which is sort of problematic in yeah. that. Um, <laughs> Washington is dead last, 50th out of 50 states in building housing and housing availability over the last 20 years. Then we wonder why housing costs so much and we have so little of it, but it's our own fault because we didn't build any of it. Yeah. And, you know, we need to build somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 units a year to get ourselves at least starting to catch back up and we're not building 10,000 of those. And with interest rates over the last year doing yeah. what they have, I don't even know the numbers since then. And I think it's, it's just going to be worse. And, you know, as you lose these single family homes from the rental market, they won't be back anytime soon because the rental rate won't make sense for the mortgage that the person is carrying. Right. Well, then maybe, you know, it's, it becomes owner occupied and uh, maybe it comes, it comes off the market for, a generation, maybe you raise your, your kids in the house, you start your family and maybe it doesn't come back on the rental market for 30 years. And, yeah. Well, um, and if we don't build more housing, there's nowhere for those people to go into the next. Right. Ex exactly. Um, I did not realize we were dead last in, in 50 the country. out of 50 that states. Horrendous. And it, at a time where the interest rates were historically low. Yes. So now we have to figure out how to build 30,000 units with interest rates much higher than 7, they were then. Yeah. That is unreal. Okay. Um, we when we spoke offline, you told me that rent control was probably the second highest priority uh, yes. for the legislature this year. What what is priority number one? Do you think for them? Um, I think their number one priority is going to be um, fentanyl and opioid addiction and mm -hmm. sort of the problems that that surround that and sure. trying to um, help with the problems, but also trying to find solutions for the people who are caught up in an addiction cycle. Mm -hmm. And so, um, along with treatment, I think those issues 
um, are going to be the number one issue in Olympia. And, you know, that ties back to housing and homelessness in small ways. Um, but only because of the fact that we have such a lack of housing that, you know, a lot of people want to kind of champion a housing first model mm -hmm. and say what you want about a housing first model. I, I have no strong opinion one way or the other, other than it doesn't seem to work great and they seem to do a lot of damaged units. Um, but with that said, um, we don't have the housing to get them into. Like there is no housing. And so the we're at a zero sum game right now. So in order to get somebody into housing, you have to remove somebody else from housing because uh -huh. we're not building more housing and we don't have enough of it. Yeah. And so it, it's a real challenge out there and something that, you know, I know is very important to a lot of lawmakers in the state of Washington, but they have to look at this through the lens of how do we get more housing mm -hmm. and the decisions they're making, trying to protect tenants with these housing restrictions are not giving us more housing. It's giving us less housing. And that is really the issue that I have with it. Um, and, you know, housing is a partnership. It's the state of Washington, the housing provider and the tenant. And everyone has a duty and everybody has a responsibility. The housing provider's responsibility is to keep the place habitable, to make sure they take care of issues, and to make sure that the tenant has quiet enjoyment of that place. The tenant's responsibility is to pay their rent and take care of the unit. And when the tenant's not able to pay their rent, the state of Washington needs to step in on behalf of that tenant and say, you know what? We are going to backstop you and we're going to make sure you don't end up homeless. And we're going to come in and take care of paying the rent so that the house stays in the rental market and the housing provider is able to continue providing housing. And we found during the pandemic that rental assistance was the one thing that helped everybody in that housing continuum. And that partnership stayed strong because the state of Washington came in and did what they should do now, which is provide assistance to those people who are at the lowest income or who are, have been marginalized or, you know, of communities of color who have been shut out of housing. And they should come in and help those people make sure that they can afford their rent. And trying to control the market with rent control, all it does is give us less housing that continues to get more expensive and it doesn't actually serve the people that they want it to. It is like taking a sledgehammer to try to kill a fly because you're not even just influencing the units that you want to. Their goal is to take care of those people who are at the lowest socioeconomic mm -hmm. status. And I applaud that goal, but rent control doesn't do that. Rent control is actually best for somebody who makes a lot of money because they get the same protections that the low income person does. Sure. And you know that was never what we intended and it's never been a good efficient use of the market. If instead they targeted rental assistance to people who are low income and part of those classes who've been historically excluded from housing, they could put money just to those people and not influence the rest of the market. And that's what they should be doing, in my opinion. Excellent. Excellent. Couldn't agree more. All right. Jumping to, uh, I believe we have four confirmed ballot initiatives with signatures turned in uh, from Let's Go Washington. And we're waiting on an additional possible two. So we've got uh, police pursuit the carbon cap and trade or the gas taxes, everybody would call it, uh, the parental rights one and uh, the state income tax, if, yep. I, if I'm correct. Yeah. Yes. Can you um, talk about those a, a little bit? Yeah. So Let's Go Washington has done a great job getting out and getting signatures. They've got six initiatives. You mentioned the four that mm -hmm. have already qualified or that they believe have enough signatures mm -hmm. to already qualify. The other two being um, the long-term care tax and... Uh, Capital gains. Capital gains, correct. Um, yeah. Those two have not qualified yet, but they do have over 350,000 signatures for each. I think they're trying to get above 400,000 so that when those signatures get gone through, they still have enough to qualify. No duplicates or anything. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but at least those four initiatives and maybe as many as six will be to the legislature for this upcoming session. And it's going to be really interesting because I will say in the 15 years I've been down here, I haven't seen this process play out the way that it did this year. And the interesting thing about initiatives is they are supposed to be granted priority over everything else except the budget. And so the budget's supposed to be the number one priority, all the initiatives are supposed to be the second priority, and then everything else. And given that everything else is a lot of issues, yeah. I mean, we talked about opioid, we talked about rent control, but there are so many others that are out there. And those things all are supposed to take a back seat to the budget and the initiatives, which is going to be in a short session. In a short session, yeah. yeah. We, we've yeah. got 60 days. Yeah. This is going to be a sprint from January 8th to March 7th. We are just going to be hitting the ground running, and they are going to be trying to get a lot of things done. But those initiatives are likely to take up a lot of time, um, uh, at least on the floor. Because you know if they're going to put these things up for a vote, um, whether that means it's the initiative as it sits now or it's been modified by the legislature, there's going to be a lot of discussion and a lot of floor time used for those. And the interesting thing is, 
if the legislature passes them as written, they do not go to the voters, which makes sense yep. because the voters already have given us the signatures. If they were to modify the bill or refuse to pass the bill, um, oh, let's just cover both of those. If they refuse to pass the bill, it automatically goes to the voters in November. Mm -hmm. If they modify the bill, I believe both versions go to the voters in November. So, um, so it could twelve. It's possible we can on. have as many as twelve <laughs> things on the ballot from six different topics. Oh. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting. And I don't know that I can say this with a hundred percent certainty, but I don't see the legislature with the current makeup of of lawmakers passing these things. Sure. The way, at least the way that they sit. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how much of this session. Um, becomes about those initiatives and the process by which they either get modified, changed, and negotiated, or just kind of set aside. Wow, it's going to be fun. It'll be interesting. It will. If you were, if you were a gambling man, I know you just said you think they're probably going to go to the ballot. Is that is that really where you yeah. put your money? Okay. Yeah, I put my money that all of them end up at the ballot, okay. and at least a couple of them end up with alternatives on the ballot with them. Okay, so maybe we get. 10 things to vote on or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I mean, I would think that the carbon one um, yeah. would probably, I mean, maybe they'll put some version of that up so that there's two versions of that sure. because that hasn't been as popular. So they, you know. Yeah, that seems to be the one that just irks the most people, just the stand, regular people I talk to. That's the one that just gets them the most, it seems like. Yeah, and the fact that the legislator, legislature made it so that you can't attribute the increase in gas costs to the carbon tax. Right is just, it's not honest. Yeah. It isn't. And we all know that, because here's the thing. They want to just say that, put this on gas companies and say that they are charging exorbitant amounts. Well, maybe. I, sure. I'm not even saying that's not true. But they raised $2 billion right. in taxes on those same people. So if they thought that wasn't going to end up in the price of the product that they produce yeah. after getting $2, two billion of their dollars... I, that's ridiculous. I, I'm not a businessman, but that just seems to make perfect, <laughs> like perfect sense to oh, a, just a God. common person who's not in business. I'm like to, to think that they won't pass this on to the consumer. I don't. I don't understand where your mind's at with that. I, no, I and it's it. like there's a lot of people who apparently do not understand the law of supply and demand. Right. Because as something gets you know more expensive or harder to get, the demand for it, like housing, is a perfect example. Yes. Supply and demand. If you have less housing, the cost of housing is going to go up because there is a fight for that housing right. and people do this. But if you produce more housing, all of those prices can come down yeah. and you can actually have it be affordable. And that's what we need to do. And we have some lawmakers who, who say, yes, we, we need to do that. But while we're doing that, we need rent control and some other things just for the next five years or 10 years. <laughs> and the problem is if you do that, you won't get any of that housing. Right. I mean, good. even... It's very, um, for people who understand the way that housing and development works, it's very easy to understand that if you put more cost and regulation onto housing, you're going to get less of it, not more of it. And I use this example a lot with lawmakers because none of them seem to understand that, not none, many of them don't seem to understand that part, but make it about plumbers. If we had a plumbing crisis, would you put more cost and regulation on plumbers and think you would get more of them. Absolutely not. Because, right. And yeah. they're like, no. And I'm like, well, that's what you're doing with housing. <laughs> and, you know, we've passed more laws in the last six years. Um, we've passed five times more laws in the last six years than the 45 years combined before that in housing. Wow. And then we wonder why our housing providers are fleeing the market. They can't keep up with this. No. It's never been this pace. It's never been this hard to be a housing provider. And then on top of that, you're hated. Like we love our small coffee shop. We love our local small business. You know, small business. Mm -hmm. We hate our local small housing provider. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. And they feel it. And they're like, why would I continue doing this uh -huh. when no one appreciates what I do and I just get yelled at all the time? Right. And and as you talked about the uh, multitude of regulations across cities too, we're, we're actually publishing something in uh, our RHA's newspaper, The Current, in January that it's a big uh, chart basically of here's all the cities Here's Washington State's laws, but here's all the cities, and here's all the different rules oh, that you have to follow in each different. I city. love that. That is going to be worth its weight in gold with yeah. lawmakers too, because visually to see what's happening out yeah. there will help them to understand why we keep talking about the need for uniformity across the state mm -hmm. and consistency. And you know that is going to be a big issue for us at RHA, not just RHA, all the housing providers, because these local jurisdictions without knowledge, experience, or expertise are making huge decisions on housing. Um, we need a uniform policy across the state. And so we're going to need state preemption on those issues. And sure. 
We won't use the word preemption. We'll talk about consistency and uniformity. Standardization, mm-hmm. uniformity, yes, yeah. But RHA has done some really good work on mm-hmm. um, language for that to make sure that we can have that standardization. And, you know, part of the bill that didn't get through last year, well, the reason that a bill that we'd all worked on and come to a compromise didn't get through last year was because a group of lawmakers, specifically from Seattle, did not want the preemption that was in the bill to preempt them. Um, because they like their local policies, even though those local policies are not leading to more housing, Absolutely they're leading not. to an increase in housing, increase in housing costs, mm-hmm. and you know less affordable housing. So that's sort of where we stand there. Yeah, um, you mentioned uh, you know regulations on building, and uh, I want to just take us down to uh, Tacoma for a minute, or I guess up because we're in Olympia, so <clears throat> up to Tacoma for a minute. Um, and I want to talk about uh, Tacoma Measure One, but before I before I get to that, um, you talked about the regulation uh, item. My uh, my parents they tried for I think it was four years to put a DADU on the back of their property because they I mean they wanted there's a garage underneath so they wanted the space too, but they also mm-hmm. wanted to provide some housing for uh, they live right by the University of Puget Sound, so they wanted okay. to either provide it to students or or they've done some traveling nurses things like that, and it took them I think three and a half years. Just to get through the permitting process, because at the time Tacoma was limiting how many they'd let people build every year and and uh, and all that. And uh, when they finally got around to it, uh, COVID had kind of set in, and so they they still ended up building it, but the lumber package was like twice as much as oh. originally. So they would have had it done a couple of years prior. Um, so I, I digress. We were just talking about regulations. No, but, we make uh, it yeah. really hard for yeah. somebody to build housing. Yeah. That's a perfect yeah. example. And permitting is one thing that has been very frustrating because it's like the cities don't understand how much cost they are adding to the average product right. by taking three years to get something uh-huh. permitted. And it's utterly ridiculous to me that it takes that long because it, that is just inefficiency and an abuse of process because they've created all of these housing laws that they want everybody to comply with, but they don't understand that here's where all the cost comes in. Uh-huh. All these things that you just required a small housing provider to provide it, it all comes out in the rent. And so if the state of Washington were really serious about building housing, the number one thing, in my opinion, that they could do is to partner with housing providers on the infrastructure to get there. Mm-hmm. If the state were, because that's a huge cost. And, you know, before, what was it, 1984, there was this partnership. But it, about that time, we came up with this concept of impact fees. And then we realized, we also came up with a motto, let's make growth pay for growth. Well, right. yes, yes, yes. Those are fine things, except yeah. they come out in the cost of the product mm-hmm. that you provide. Those same people who were screaming for let's make growth pay for growth are now screaming about why there's no affordable housing. <laughs> and it's their fault. You put all this cost on developers, whether it's a million dollars in impact fees to build 50 units, or it's the development requirements of burying the utilities or paving the, you know, the alleyway or putting in curb bulbs, a whole bunch of things that have no ROI to the housing portion, but cost millions of dollars. Yeah. And then you wonder why your housing is so expensive. And the city of Olympia is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. We tried to build about 60 units of affordable housing. It was just before COVID. And the million dollar impact fee number that we got was not a deal breaker. We expected that. But when they then required us to bury the power lines two blocks before our block and two blocks after, and this is on the main street in Olympia. It's on 4th Avenue, the one way that goes up. Um, And it's in a high density commercial zone. It's got buses that run up both sides. And then they wanted us to pave the alley and put in a curb bulb. And it was a little over $2 million in cost that had no ROI. And you know what? The funders for that project went somewhere else. They went to Austin and they went to Colorado. And they're not building housing in Washington. And that is where a whole bunch of people are. You know, not to get too far afield, but we've got a Washington Business Property Association member who owns 1,200 housing unit sites for single-family homes. Uh And he is building zero. And right across the border from Spokane in Idaho, he's building over 1,000 homes. And he has no intention of building in the state of Washington. Wow. That's funny you, you talk about Idaho. I hadn't been in a while. And I took a road trip to Boise with my family back in April. And the stark contrast in just driving across state lines and just seeing what, what things look like over there. I'm like, man, somebody... I, I mean, I was walking around Boise with my kids. And there was a, uh, a city worker who... This was right kind of as they were coming out of winter. Was cleaning a stop sign. Because that's that's... What they have time and and effort and money for because they're not they're not wasting it on I don't want to say frivolities but that's what they have time for with their yeah. with their money so and you know we have this desperate need for housing but we apparently don't understand how housing works 
or what's required. And, you know, the Washington State Housing Finance Commission, Uh they have said that they will not invest in any state that has rent control. So I don't understand how the state thinks they're going to get all this housing if they put these regulations in that make people not want to build housing. Uh, yeah, I that would seem like really, really easy cause and effect to me. But I, I, well, I'm and if they yeah. if you'd spend a little bit of time looking, Freddie and Fannie are underfunding the state of Washington. Um, if if you were to talk to them, they've said this, ah. um, and not by choice, but just because there's not projects that are coming in from the state sure. of Washington at the same rate that they're coming in from other places. And the reason is people don't want to build housing in the state. Not nobody, yeah, but. You know, we're second to California um, in the amount of regulation and especially like environmental regulation that we put mm-hmm. onto housing. And, you know, the if you look at California as a model and you want to be like them, we have problems because they're losing housing twice as fast to wildfires alone yeah. as they are building it. Um, and the reason is it takes between 10 and 20 years to permit a subdevelopment in California. And I've talked to developers down there who say they can go across the border into Nevada and they can have a shovel in the ground in 12 months. And so we're not quite that bad yet. We're like three years, three and a yeah. half years. But all of that, that is all time that has cost associated with it. The holding cost of that property for yeah. that period of time is significant. And it's something that could be done away with just by jurisdictions getting their permitting in line. Sure. And you could save a whole bunch of that cost. Wow. Wow. Um, where were we talking? Oh, we were, we were on Tacoma before. Yeah. Our, yeah. Uh, our side, uh, the, um, unfortunate passage of, of measure one in Tacoma, um, the city after everything passes says that they won't be enforcing this actually. Um, since there was no, you know, language in the initiative for enforcement. Um, do you think they're just waiting on lawsuits to set precedent or what do you, what do you think they're thinking? There? I think the city of Tacoma, um, never wanted this to pass because sure. they understand that it's going to provide a whole lot less housing in Tacoma, not more. Yeah. And that providers are just going to decide, I don't need to do this and I don't want to do this in the city of Tacoma. Um, they've made it so difficult for a housing provider. And, you know, even more than the difficulty, you know, a lot of our small housing providers are people who are at or close to retirement age mm-hmm. and this is their retirement. Yep. They don't have a bunch of 401ks and stocks. They bought real estate. Because they are people who like to be able to go out and touch something and see it and Mm -hmm. work with a tangible asset. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what housing has always been. But those same people are very concerned that their retirement is going to be taken by the state of Washington through these laws. And they're not wrong. They're right. More and more times, these laws are costing them tens of thousands of dollars. And, you know, we... uh, We've seen in other places kind of where Tacoma's headed. And if you look at the city of Seattle, you know, they lost in 2022 alone, they lost 14% of all of the single family homes in their rental market because of the winter eviction ban, the school year eviction ban, and the other policies. And now those great ideas, I say facetiously, have come to Tacoma. And so you can expect Tacoma to lose a similar amount of their housing providers because the people who own single family homes do not have to be rentals. They can sell those and the market is hot and there are people who need housing out there. Now the interest rates are a little higher now. So compared with 12 or 24 months ago, you know, there's not quite the same return, but the reality is there's still a massive shortage in housing. And if you have a housing unit, it is very marketable at any time. Absolutely. And I mean, who knows? I mean, the spring could be a completely different story. You've got the fed talking about not at least one rate cut next year. Yes. And maybe as many as four the next year. Um, so I mean, mortgage rates have come back down. I don't know, high sixes or somewhere thereabouts, but I, the spring, I mean, if we kind of keep going this trend and like you said, if you want to, especially if you've owned the house for some time and you have a large amount of equity in it, sell it. Yeah. I, I mean, and they are the and, cash somewhere else. Yeah. And that is a huge problem for us because when those units sell, they are no longer rentals right. the majority of the time. And we're not building more. Yeah. Like the, the, the stock that we're building, even, you know, we're building, less than 7,000 units a year or something like that. But they are heavily weighted towards one bedrooms, studios. Like look at South Lake Union. That's where a bunch of the housing is getting built. What do you do if you're a family and you need three bedrooms Mm -hmm. or you have four kids and you need to rent? You know, we need to be incentivizing housing providers to make sure that they are in the market taking care of these families. And we need to partner with them so they don't feel not only like they're the enemy, but like they're left out on an island by themselves. Right. Um, so with 
this passage in Tacoma, I we've talked about rent control at the state level and everything. Do you do you think there will be a bill closely mirroring this, or I don't want to say identical, but maybe a slightly watered down version of this at the state level? Yeah, you know, um, I think we've been told already that there was going to be a version of the Tacoma Measure One mm-hmm. run at the state level. I think the fact that it only passed by 300 votes or 400 votes three, in the... 362, I think it was. Yeah, there 362. There you <laughs> go. That's my exact yeah. yeah. In the second most liberal city in this state right, right. should give them pause as to whether or not that has the um, appeal to a, a broader category of lawmaker. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you there's a lot of people who don't think that's a good idea at all. Yeah. Now, I think we'll probably see the bill. It will give us an opportunity for discussion. Sure. And we can talk about many of these things. And RHA will be doing a ton to educate lawmakers on rent control, but also on this issue. So we'll be meeting with every member of the Senate Housing Committee, every member of the House Housing Committee. And, you know, whether they're Republican or Democrat, we're a bipartisan organization. We support those people who support our housing providers. And there are people from both sides of the aisle that do a really good job for us. There's going to be a rent control hearing, probably on the new rent control bill from Representative Alvarado, that is going to try to peg that, I believe, at 5%. Um, and we're going to need to have lawmakers see how important this issue is to our members. And, you know, we are the only state on the West Coast that does not have rent control. And it has been because of the efforts of RHA and our partners. And we are going to stay that way. But we're only going to be able to do it if everybody joins us and comes down to Olympia, contacts their lawmakers, lets them know rent control is a terrible idea and that we are looking for a partnership with the state and want to be long-term partners. RHA is going to work on drafting, uh, with, with your help, uh, a, sh- a short list of bills to try to kind of put forward for the uh, the session. We're talking about our uh, tenant assistance program. We like to call it TAP, you know, turn on the that tap. That is my favorite. Yeah, is it? Okay. <laughs> um, giving uh, tenants kind of, as you mentioned, some short-term help if they're having some trouble. Maybe they lost their job or a medical issue, anything like that. Um, what? Yeah, so your favorite issue, What what are, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Um, my thought is that that's exactly what the state of Washington should be doing yeah. for those people who have the least financial resources and mm-hmm. can't do that for themselves or have hit a hard time. It puts, you know, we talked about this earlier, but it puts everybody in the housing partnership in the place they should be. And the state of Washington's place is to pay the rent or help with the rent for those people who are either low income, they've been hit by some, you know, problem or yeah crisis or, you know, they're part of these communities who've always been underfunded. And if we focused our money on those folks and helping to make sure they can bridge that gap between where their finances might be and where the rent is, then we can really do something to keep everybody in this market. We keep the housing provider providing the housing. We keep the tenant housed and the state of Washington it you know comes in and puts a little bit of money in on behalf sure. of the tenant and you know in some of these cases it could be as little as a couple hundred dollars a month right you know some people are just a little bit away mm-hmm. you know they're they, they can afford you know fifteen hundred but they rent seventeen hundred yeah um, and the tenant assistance program tap um, I love the turn on the tap right, yeah, that's perfect <laughs> and that's what we should do we should yeah. be as a state prioritizing those people who have the least resources and the hardest time economically and putting money into them mm-hmm. rather than putting restrictive policies on everyone. So next bill, uh, we we may draft up and put forward um, tenant and landlord safety, kind of prioritizing tenant safety as well as maybe the property management staff. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on something like that? This one's important. Um, yeah. Over the last uh, five, seven years, um, housing providers have lost the tools to deal with problematic tenants. And the people being hurt by that are the other tenants. It's the people who live in the building and now have to put up with somebody who pulled a gun on someone else or who, you know, has physically attacked them or who has been, you know, berating their wife every time she comes home. And as a housing provider, it is very frustrating to have our tenants who are good tenants come to us and say, we have these problems and for us to have no tools to deal with that problematic behavior. And, you know, we have, by law, we're guaranteed a 30-day window to deal with these problems legally. That is gone. They are, right now, if you file an unlawful detainer in King County, I believe they're scheduling in July. And it's December. So that's seven months from now. And so, you know, that expedited process is gone. And that means all of these tenants have to deal with this problematic person who is continuing to cause problems. Yes. And now that they're actually being evicted, now they've just ramped up their behavior uh-huh. from an eight to a 10. Right. And they're gonna be there for months, yep. terrorizing the rest of the people who live in that unit. And there is nothing as a housing provider that I can do to get that person out. Right. And 
that is for our tenants, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen. Like our job as housing providers is to make sure that they have a safe place to live and they have quiet enjoyment of their unit. That's our, that's our job. Mm -hmm. And we can't do that job because the laws have made it so that we can't take care of a problematic tenant for the rest of the people. And it's an issue that I'm hoping we can get a lot of tenants to Olympia to talk to their lawmakers about the fact that they don't want this problematic person to be given seven months before they can be dealt with. Right, right. Well, because uh, before a lot of the new policies, it was what, like like 30 days? You could, I yeah. Mean, I know you said, I just said a file of the unlawful detainer, but um, generally 30 days you could, you could. Yep. And there yeah. was actually a tool before that actually, so you had a 20 day no fault move out where okay. you could just yeah. give a 20 day notice from the end of the month and get that person out. Uh-huh. Um, and, and it didn't end in eviction. They didn't have anything bad on their record. Okay. Okay. It was it was not bad for both sides because yeah. that person who was a problem didn't end up getting barriers to them getting their next housing. Sure. Whereas when they end up with the eviction, they're going to have barriers to getting their next yeah. housing. And because they were a problematic and terrible tenant to the other people who lived in that unit, they deserve those barriers. Sure. But in reality, if we had enough housing those barriers would be significantly reduced because they'd have somewhere else they might be able to go. And maybe they will have learned from this experience and they can be a better tenant at the next one. But the reality is when they are eventually moved out of that unit and the rest of the tenants, you know, rejoice, um, hopefully we haven't lost too many of them, but Mm -hmm. you know, we are losing good tenants who are mad because we're not dealing with the problematic tenant and we have no ability to do it other than with the court system. Right. And then the the other thing that happened was we used to have a 10-day notice to comply. Yes. And that 10-day notice to comply got watered down to the point where it's almost useless at this point. And so, you know, there is a need to have some tools to deal with problematic tenants on behalf of the other tenants in that building so that they can have a, um, a peaceful and enjoyable life and this person can't terrorize that entire group. Well, and then, you know, if they're if they're stuck there for seven months too, they're assuming... I'm assuming they're probably not paying rent if they know they're going through this process. Yeah. Then by the time they move out too, maybe they have an eight month judgment against them for back rent or whatever. And so then they're saddled with that financial issue as well. Yeah. Plus the issue of finding new housing with the eviction and all the rest on their, on their record. That's uh, it's not, it's a lose lose situation for, for everybody. Yeah. Uh, so another bill, the uh, electronic notification modernization, um, simple electronic notices allowed for, you know, most of, of all the servicing needs um, cause you can go through, we were, offline, we were talking about buying houses and stuff earlier, and you can go through most of the home buying process digitally. You may, you know, you may have to go in, you know, at the end, when you fill out all your paperwork, you have a notary stamp something and you sign one or a couple pieces of paper with an actual pen. But, um, in with renting, it's, it's completely not, not up to scratch, I guess, on that, on that front. Yeah. And this is something that was part of the agreement that we had last year mm-hmm. that ended up blowing up. Um, I don't know that there is um, disagreement about the idea of modernizing this. It's just in the details of how we do that. Sure. And the the version that we're looking at is an opt-in so that the tenant would choose to be involved mm-hmm. in that electronic notices process. And realistically, talking to a, a lot of our tenants, they tell me that they are much more likely to get an email than they are their actual mail. <laughs> because either they don't check it very often sure. or whatever, and they check their email religiously. Yes. And so... Um, you know, we believe that that's actually a better notification method for everybody. And, it, you know, additionally, it's something that I think has some bipartisan appeal. This one, I don't think has to be a fight. We got to get the details right so that everybody can feel comfortable with it. But it's a good idea. And it's something that um, Oregon just tackled. And so oh, we might be looking to Oregon at their solution, which I think they combined electronic notices with... Um, uh, the return of deposit funds by ACH or something okay, like that. Okay. Uh-huh. And so there was a little bit of win for everybody in that. Sure. And um, that's something that we are definitely looking at um, how we might be able to um, get some support for a version like that. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm hoping that this um, electronic notices bill, which we're running for both the RLTA and the MHLTA mm-hmm. both, uh, so that everybody would have the ability to use electronic notices. And this is something our partners at the Manufactured Housing Communities of Washington, this is one of their top three issues and you know, also our friends over at WUMFA, the Washington Multifamily yeah. Housing Association. So everybody's aligned on this. We think it's a really good idea. And if we can keep away from partisan bickering, we may be able to get this thing done. Sure. When you talk about this Washington wanting to be green as well, think about all the driving around yes. all these pa- papers and the trees and everything. I yep. mean, it's a- and on top of that, you know, in, uh, we're required to put these notices on people's doors. Right. And that, it's embarrassing. That is, you know, 
not something that nobody wants that notice tacked up to their no. door. We don't want to put it up there. They don't want it on the door. Yeah. Let's send it electronically instead. And everybody can feel a little bit better about that. And no one gets shamed. Sure. Um, and the next would be the affordable housing tax relief, I think is what we're going to call it. Um, but big developers have MFTE. MFTE. Um, how about maybe getting something like that for the small mom and pops? Love it. Yeah. Um, the idea behind this is um, sort of an agreement to keep our rents um, affordable in exchange for a tax um, benefit whether that's a waiver of property tax or something else, but some financial incentive for a housing provider to agree to keep their unit at an affordable rate, which again, solution that helps everybody. It keeps the tenant at a rent they can afford. It keeps the housing provider providing housing and getting the benefit of this tax uh, reduction. And the state of Washington, you know, they are providing that tax reduction mm -hmm. and doing their part in the partnership as well. And so every it's one of those solutions along with rental assistance that kind of keeps everybody whole yeah. and makes everybody win. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we've already kind of talked about it a little bit. We know we have a housing supply issue, but if you, if you had to just pinpoint one action that the legislature could take, I know one's hard, mm. but if you, if you had to pinpoint one, what, what do you think it would be to help with, with housing supply? Infrastructure. Okay. I think it, it would be that the state of Washington comes in as a partner and I don't know what the back end looks like there. Obviously there's some agreement on affordability mm -hmm. that the state of Washington could ask for yep. in exchange for providing, you know, the water, sewer, different uh, roads, whatever, sure. power, um, all of those things. And we could, there's a way to get there where it's a win for everybody. The state of Washington produces infrastructure, which they should do. Mm -hmm. It will reduce the cost of housing. And then they get some concession from the housing provider or the, you know, the uh, developer on how they're going to keep this affordable for some period of time. Sure. And then in that situation, everybody wins because you end up getting more housing. You end up with the state of Washington helping to, to put housing where they want it because they can put the infrastructure in, in locations where they're looking to get more housing. Mm -hmm. And they'd have to do it in partnership with the cities, obviously, because those would be in city areas. But sure. um, I think that one of the best things they could do is just kind of lean into that partnership with you know the local jurisdictions, the housing provider, and the rental uh, or the renter, in order to help us to expand the supply of all mm -hmm. housing, because by building all of the housing, we'll get more rental housing. Absolutely. And part of the reason is even if you build high end homes, people move up into those, others move up, mm -hmm. and then you're often left with this rental home that is now at a, a more affordable rate that you can now work with somebody 100%. on a, a you know a rent that can be affordable. Absolutely. Well, Chester Baldwin, thank you so much for joining me on uh, Housing Matters. I hope everybody um, will get some great insight on kind of the upcoming legislative session from what we discussed today and kind of where, where we're going at the state level. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This was wonderful. And, you know, I feel very lucky to get to work for our members in Olympia. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Housing Matters. I hope my conversation with Chester has put a little bit more light on what to expect in Olympia in January and February this year. Now to quickly cover the rent control bill, uh, House Bill 2114, sponsored by Reps Alvarado and Macri that Chet alluded to in our conversation. Uh, you can read the bill in detail on the Washington Legislature page, but here are some of the just the quick, you know, takeaway uh, quick details here. Uh, rent control, rent controlled increase of 5% in any 12 month period. So you can only raise your rent 5% uh, per year. Um, any increase over 3% must be given with 180 days notice. And with this, a tenant can end their lease within 20 days of the renewal notice if the rent is, is increases over 3%. So if you give them the rent increase, um, as, we, as we understand it, within a 20 day period after that, your tenant can choose to break the lease and, and walk away if they decide that they don't like that rental increase. Late fees limited to $10 a month. Um, that's, mo that's very much in line with uh, Seattle and what Tacoma just recently passed. Mandatory damages of three months rent plus attorney's fees for any tenant who pursues a private right of action against their rental housing provider. One last thing I'll note on this, again, you can read the full bill in detail on the Washington Legislature page, but the last bullet point I kind of want to cover is no way of increasing rent by more than 5%, even in the event that the factors of cost are outside of the housing provider's control, such as maybe their property taxes go way up or their homeowner's insurance. Um, you know, jumps up by quite a bit, things like that, completely out of the uh, housing provider's um, control, still can't raise rent by more than 5%. RHA will be in Olympia speaking with lawmakers uh, to impress upon them why a bill such as the one I just mentioned would be devastating to the small rental housing providers that are the makeup of RHA's membership. 
We'll have updates on all our social media channels for all things rental housing concern during this legislative session. So keep an eye out for all that. Also, reach out to your local district lawmakers and impress upon them why a bill such as the one I described would have a profound effect on you as a small rental housing provider. Look for episodes of this podcast, Housing Matters, anywhere you find your podcast, or if you prefer the video version, you can find that on RHA's YouTube channel. If you have a topic that you believe should be covered in a future episode of Housing Matters, please feel free to email at me at my email, C-H-J-A-L-S-E-T-H at rhawa.org. Please feel free to email me if you have any uh, suggestions for topics or if you think you I, I should be diving deeper into something that is affecting our collective industry together. The views expressed in episodes of RHAWA's Housing Matters podcast do not necessarily represent the views and policies of the Rental Housing Association of Washington. Formal legal advice and review is recommended prior to selection and use of this information. RHAWA does not represent your selection or execution of this information as appropriate for your specific circumstance. The material contained and represented herein, although obtained from reliable sources, is not considered legal advice or to be used as a substitution for legal counsel. Copyright 2024.